Hello and welcome to the Love History podcast where we explore what happens when an LGBTQ plus historian and a mudlark chat to their friends about a shared love of history. Happy LGBTQ plus history month. I'm Mock O'Keefe and I'm known on socials on Instagram, on TikTok and on YouTube as Gay Aristo. And I'm Marie-Louise Plum. Welcome and you can find me on all socials as Old Father Thames. Now in this podcast we chat to fellow history lovers, people working in history, and even some people who are making history themselves. Yeah, so sit back and relax, make yourself a beverage of choice, and welcome to the Love History Podcast. And do remember to subscribe and follow to make sure that you hear all of the episodes in Series 1. So, Marie, Old Father Thames, what have you been up to, historically speaking, recently? Well, niche as ever, I have been looking at a particular part of medieval history, and that is the kind of work that women did, women's work in medieval London specifically. And surprisingly, unless it was written into uh, a guild that women were to be excluded from, from work, some guilds had that written in, there is a caveat, I'll come to that. Um, women really did have the run of doing jobs that men were able to do as well, like even barber surgeons, jobs that you think typically men would be doing. So that's really interesting. I guess needs must, and they, <laughs> women were just put to work as well. Um, interestingly, something I'm really looking at is, so for example, uh, pinners, I think, um, people who made pins, they had a restriction in their... Um, the governing body, the guild, that said women were not to be working, but there was an exception. And this happens in with lots of women in medieval uh, Britain. They can take over the work of their husband. Uh, so if they're a wife, a widowed wife or a daughter, they can carry on the family business. So there were female pinners um, who were carrying on a pinning business. There were famous apothecaries. Um, so yeah, I've been looking at that kind of stuff. Wow. And how about you? It's actually very interesting. It is to some extent closely aligned because I've been looking at women who wear what would be traditionally described as male gender clothing. And often in, in medieval times, particularly, um, and in Elizabethan times and Stuart times as well, women uh, were discovered to be posing as men. So they would go and work in coal mines. They would go and work in factories in the Industrial Revolution. They would dress as men and they would present themselves as men to the world. Now, there's a big debate at the moment about whether or not that was of economic necessity. Sometimes when you look into their mm -hmm. background, they may have had a female partner at home. So were they trying to live or present themselves in a kind of a gender-conforming marriage? Were they lesbians? Were they early trans people? So when you mentioned that, I thought, oh my goodness, I can't believe how yet again we are aligned. Wow, wonderful. Fantastic. Now, before we get into our interview with Prince Manvenger, we have had a question sent in from the romantic novelist Liz Fennick. And if anyone else would like to ask us a question, please email us. It's lovehistorypodcast at gmail.com. So, Mock, are you ready? The question from Liz. Having studied how women have been omitted from history, are you surprised that LGBTQ plus histories have been hidden, ignored or omitted? 
Oh, wow. Thank you, Liz. And thank you for being such a friend and an ally. I know I've read some of your books and, um, and we've done an Instagram live together. And you have LGBTQ plus characters in your book and they just happen to be there, which I love. Am I surprised that it's been omitted from history? Well, we're in LGBTQ plus history month, so the answer is no. In fact, so much of queer or LGBTQ plus history has been deliberately hidden. And that's, I believe, as a queer historian, because narratives of history are written by the victors. They're written by the winners and they're written by the most powerful. And historically, those have been white, straight, men. So they talk about the histories of white, straight men, what countries they invade, what crowns they were able to wear, um, and whether or not they would recognize their illegitimate children. So the narratives of other people who were othered by these straight white men have really not been recorded, have been hidden. But I love the fact now that there is a real, you know, within the museums, uh, within historical societies, there's a real thirst to uncover this hidden history. And my mission in The Gay Aristo is to bring that hidden history to light. So not surprised, Liz, but you, me and old Father Thames, we're doing our best to uncover that hidden history together. <laughs> anyway, enough about us. We have a truly, truly exciting episode. Today, we are meeting Prince Manvendra of India, who is going to share his own unique story, his own personal story. He was born a member of a royal family within India. He actually was married to a woman, but he knew he was gay and he came out as gay, and the impact of someone coming from that historical context and having that level of notoriety and pressure upon him had a huge impact on his mental health. But he has turned the oppression that he received both from his family and his people into a positive, and now he is an activist for LGBTQ plus rights in India. He is one member of a royal family that I would willingly bow to. He's absolutely amazing. So let's have a listen to our prince today, and then we'll come back and we'll chat about what we've learned from his story. That's fantastic. I can't wait to meet him. So let's head over to our guest interview. So hello. Thank you so much for joining us, Prince Manvendra. It is a real pleasure to have you here on the Love History podcast. Um, you're in India at the moment, is that right? Yes, I'm in the city of Mumbai. Super. Well, thank you for fitting us in. I know it's a very busy schedule. Now, um, although you have been uh, on the Oprah Winfrey show, you are on social media as well. There may be some people who don't understand how there is a prince in India. So do you want to tell us a little bit around who you are, a bit about your family dynasty? I believe it goes back to the 13th century and how a member of the royal family operates in a modern democracy. So uh, I uh, hold the title of uh, the Crown Prince of uh, Rajpipla, a princely state uh, which used to be uh, in the western part of India. It was a princely state uh, during the uh, pre-independence period of India. Now, of course, India is a democratic republic. Our uh, dynasty, which is called the Bohil dynasty, dates back to 1370 AD. And uh, I am the 39th direct descendant of this 650-year-old uh, Bohil dynasty. Uh, now, because our country is a democratic republic and uh, our uh, uh, titles and privileges were withdrawn by 
one of our prime ministers in 1971. But uh, having said that, we still uh, happen to be the custodians of this rich cultural heritage, which has been inherited by us from our ancestors. And we have the duty and responsibility to continue with the lineage and to maintain and preserve our uh, uh, rich cultural uh, history, uh, which is in the form of palaces, museums, uh, old uh, retainers, staff, uh, uh, traditions, ceremonies, and many, many other things which we need to take care of. Okay, so really making sure that you look after the history and the culture of the country. Uh, and within that, then, a lot of responsibilities as a member of the royal household. Can you tell me a little bit with that history, that heritage and that great responsibility, uh, what it was like and your journey to realising that you are, in fact, a gay man? So uh, my childhood has been a very strict, conservative uh, uh, bringing up because uh, I was born in the era when we still enjoyed our rights and privileges. I was born in 1965 and our privileges were withdrawn in 1971. So I've seen uh, around uh, five to six years of that uh, culture uh, in which I was raised. But there were very strict rules and regulations, very norms to be followed. I was raised by a nanny. We don't have that uh, love and affection, natural love and affection from the parents. Uh, we have share a very, very formal relation with them. Uh, so there is no attachment with parents per se, but we are we are normally raised by nannies or governesses. So we, we tend to have a attachment with uh, of the servants uh, who have raised us. Uh, and this, our servants also have been, uh, you know, uh, they've been part of the family since generations. We have got cooks and drivers and gardeners, butlers, nannies who have been with us for the last 200 years, 300 years. I mean, the families have been with us. So we can imagine it's it's a it's a uh, generation after generation tradition. And having said that, uh, uh, I would also like to add that uh, I grew up in a culture which I call homo social culture. Now, this homo social culture is a very unique culture which is found only in India and some of the countries uh, neighboring India. Now, what is homo social culture? Is where you tend to find. Uh, same sex, like men and men, women and women, in private or in public, showing intimacy, showing love, showing affection, touching each other, and they not necessarily be gay or lesbian. They may be, they will be all straight men, but yet they will show a lot of, uh, uh, you know, attachment. Uh, you know, hugging each other in public, holding hands. You know, uh, putting your their arms on the other one's shoulders and you know, behaving in a way as if they are same-sex couples uh, to the outside world. But uh, actually, uh, they are, they may be, you know, as straight as ever, you know. Right. So, there will be a lot of confusion to people watching them. So, I grew up in that kind of atmosphere. Even our palaces, for that matter, uh, most of our palaces in India have a very strict homosocial culture in the sense there are palaces where only the male members are allowed and there are certain palaces where only certain part of the palace where only the female parts of members are allowed, mm. even the servants and all, you know, so a very strict homosocial culture. And I grew up in that culture. So for me, uh, I didn't see anything wrong in, uh, uh, you know, expressing a homos homosexual behavior because it was accepted in that sense. You know, I, I remember uh, uh, I studied in a co-education school 
poet school where there were boys and girls i uh, of course had girls also who were my friends not that i was attracted towards them but yes i i did have friends who were girls but there was a very strict uh, rule at home that i cannot meet my girl friend uh, unless and until the mother or the father of the girl was at home and uh, if at all i had to go and see someone who's girl my nanny had to accompany me and be there all the time however if i had a boyfriend i had a friend who was a boy or a male he could come inside my bedroom and no questions asked right so right. you understand that what is homosexual culture i mean you're you're as children you're told that if you're a boy you can only play with a boy if you're a girl you can only play with a girl you cannot play with the opposite sex mm-hmm. so that's the culture in which i was i was i was raised so uh, i i never knew that uh, being gay or being lesbian what it is first of all i never knew though uh, i've heard it from my own parents mouth talking about many people in the royal families oh you know what so and so maharaja is gay or so and so princess is lesbian i knew those words as i was growing up it they used to talk about it in within their their uh, close circles it was it wasn't talked about in public but i i actually did not know what was the meaning of uh, gay and lesbian when i lesbian of course there was no word like lesbian in the dictionary then and when i looked up the word gay it meant happy right. so i said wow if that maharaja or that king is king is happy then it's 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 a good thing you know why should we even <laughs> talk about it so so that that was uh, that was something was which was very interesting so uh, i uh, i also grew up in a a uh, section of the palace where only male members were allowed so i i i grew up with a kind of an intimacy with a relationship so called relationship with my own servant boy and that servant boy was kept to bathe me to take care of all my personal needs and everything and and i gradually started exploring him he started exploring me and he kind of uh, you know started a, a kind of a relationship and it wasn't seen uh, as at all it was seen as accepted because he's male and i'm male so it's fine you know there, there there was no questions asked what was he doing in my in the washroom with me you know <laughs> they were they were not worried about that you know they would have been definitely worried if there would be a girl in the washroom with me so knowing that was the context you grew up in yes. segregation of the sexes but as you say a homosexual society my understanding is though when you did formally come out as a gay man there was quite a negative response yes. from your parents particularly from your mother are you happy to share a little yes. bit around your experience yes see uh, these things are very very secretive these royal so called royal secrets as i call it they they are meant to remain within the four walls of the family as, as i mentioned to you in the past there are so many members of the royal family whom i knew were you know gay or lesbian but but they were only within the the royal family circles circles they knew about them nobody in the public or nobody outside the royal family knew about the sexual orientation or sexuality of anyone in the royal family so uh, my coming out was a big it created a big havoc you know i mean i, I the fact that i created history by becoming the first member of a royal family in the world to openly come out as gay itself was was a big uh, you know like a thunderbolt thing to you know imagine that oh the, this is this kind of a royal secret can can also go public mm-hmm. it was never expected by any member of a royal family in india 
uh, and uh, I think the, the worst, of course, my parents were upset, agitated, that's up different. But imagine those royal family members in India about whom I knew that they were gay and imagine their condition because they were so scared that they said, wow, now this guy has, has become shameless and he has outed himself. And now he is going to out us. And they were really intimidated that, uh, my goodness, now what should we do? And that's the reason they instigated my parents and shut him down. We have to shut him down before he spills the beans and like, you know, he outs all of us. Nobody will respect the royal families. And, and that's why my parents took action against me based on uh, being instigated because my my remember my father has given an interview in the newspaper and he said that he he loved like me as a child he was he felt that I was a blessed child uh, and a gifted individual but he was instigated by the conservative society of India to take a step to disown me and disinherit me he has he has confessed that it is the, these people and I mean I had no reason to out anyone. I mean, you all, that's their private life. If they don't want to wish to come out of their closet, that's that's fine. They can remain in their royal closets, you know. <laughs> I have no means to out anyone, but that was the fear which these royals had in their mind. And that's why they were trying to, even even they, they tried to kill me as well. I had I was receiving death threats because they said the only one of the, the, the best solution to shut him down is to kill him. You know, that will silence him forever. So, and royal conspiracies are very common. You, you and me, we know that India, so many stories we have where murders have happened, have happened in the past. And it, it all goes hidden. Uh, you know, nobody even talks about it. Nobody even knows that it, it has been a conspiracy. So it's very easy to kill someone in the royal family. Very difficult situation for you in that your family were under pressure from other royals. I believe there was, all, you know, you were then disinherited publicly in a newspaper. And... I also understand that your effigy was burned by the local yes. people. Well, tell me a little bit about what happened there. Yes. So that was the, that was again an instigation. They wanted to socially uproot me and financially, uh, you know, uh, disable me. That these were the two things they said. They thought that you know by which I kept I could be silenced, uh, and that's the reason the the the, the royal families who were scared. They were the ones who kind of instigated the people to burn my effigies, to kind of have a, this protest organized where they could, you know, shout slogans and uh, uh, create a mob mentality where I would be put to shame and humiliation in front of the public uh, with the aim to kind of socially boycott me. Uh, so th this was all done to, to, you know, to fight, to make, me, but on the contrary, instead of make, silencing me, I became even more vocal. You know, <laughs> I started giving more and more news uh, you know, I, I was not scared of their uh, their threats or anything. I said, I have to break this silence. I need to talk on the subject which has been existing in our culture right since Kama Sutra or even before that. And still people are not willing to share this or talk about it. So I, I went on talking from media to media, television, newspapers, magazines. Finally, I reached Oprah and Kardashians and many other people. So, you know, so, you know I, 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 was, I did not feel shy and stop. I said, fine, if I, get, if I have to get killed, I'll get killed. But by, by my death, uh, the LGBT movement in India is not going to stop. On the contrary, it's going to get even stronger. I'm not scared of death. Uh, I, I will continue my fight because my fight is based on, based on truth and honesty. And I know that honesty always wins. 
I love the idea that you can't go against someone who's honest. And I also really admire the fact that you come from a very uh, privileged position uh, and you are using uh, your platform to represent and to advocate for human rights and for the rights of LGBTQ plus people. As you said, you uh, you ended up even on the Oprah Winfrey show. Can you tell us a little bit about how on earth did you end up several times on the Oprah Winfrey show and maybe the impact of that on on LGBTQ plus people and awareness in India? I went on her show in first time in 2007 which was a turning point in my life because it was a live interview. And through her interview, she brought out a lot of uh, uh, facts about India through my, my personal journey, through my personal story. So a lot of people who's ever had any myths or misconceptions about uh, being LGBT in India, they were all, uh, you know, the, they got to know a lot of things through this, this show. And the show became so popular all over the world that wherever it went, I started getting invitations from various countries wherever the show was aired and uh, by the end of three to or four years I had traveled across the globe meeting all the influential people from prime ministers, presidents, governors, United Nations officials, Hollywood and and so and so forth. So uh, and uh, each and every person I met I was just telling them one and only one thing please help us get freedom in India for the LGBT brothers and sisters. That was the biggest help I got from Oprah. She popularized me. She made me an international icon. She made she gave me the platform to uh, advocate for my cause, for my issues uh, on on a on a global front with influential people. Tell me a little bit then around your advocacy work in India at the moment. I know particularly that you're focusing on the trans community because, you know, you mentioned that India is the country of the Kama Sutra. You have non-gender conforming gods and yet still the trans community in India is still marginalised despite its historical and cultural significance. See, India, as I mentioned, uh, is the land of Kama Sutra and the, the world's oldest sex encyclopedia was written. And it is so unfortunate that the basic sex education is missing in our education system. There is, uh, I have traveled up the globe and Kama Sutra is famous all over the world except India. We are so ashamed of even, even talking about sex and sexuality that you know we, we don't even talk about gender issues at least. So it is, it is basically, it is the hypocrisy in our country not accepting the truth has resulted in all the marginalization of the community. And with talking about the trans community, uh, we we have the uh, one of the uh, one of the types of the, the transgenders is the hijra community, which is very typical uh, in India. Now, what are hijra? Hijras are coming. They are a part of the transgender umbrella, where uh, they were they have been mentioned in our old epics like the Mahabharata, and they are there in our old scriptures. They be they are they were like religious leaders. They were they were worshipped. They were they were like saints. They were even even the, they had the powers to bless. So uh, I also call India as a country of paradox. On one hand, you invite these hijras to bless a married couple or you bless a newborn child, especially a male child in the family, and at the same time you are. Uh, uh, you're discriminating with them. You are you are violating their human rights. They're, you're putting them to shame and humiliation and marginalizing them. So uh, 
we need to educate the people we need to educate the 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 the, key, the root cause of all these problems is our education system which we need to change and i'm working very hard on that trying to work with the ministry of education trying to include the issues of the lgbtqi plus uh, into our textbooks so that we can educate the students about uh, our community our of the gender issues the sexuality issues and the types of violence which is happening against us this is obviously the love history podcast one of my own personal obsessions is country houses historic buildings um and i know that you're using an historic building in india for an lgbtq plus community center can you tell us a little bit around how you've taken something that has historical significance and made it relevant to a marginalized community today definitely so my great grandfather who was the last ruler of rajputra maharaja vijay singh ki he had built a palace a beautiful palace on the banks of india's third largest river that's narmada river uh, and the, the uh, he was he was greatly influenced by the british architecture so this palace very much resembled the windsor castle he made it on the river so that it uh, it it resembles like the windsor castle is on the river thames yeah he actually got weeping willows from uh, london to plant them on the river banks because to make it appear to a visitor that it's it's like the windsor castle on the river thames and it uh, this property was for uh, entertaining the british guests royalty coming especially the the governors of uh, the bombay state in which we were uh, administered by even the some of the governors have become the viceroy of india our favorite guest was ian fleming who's the creator of james bond he was his guest there yes he uh, he also had a guest a scottish actress by the name of ella atherton who uh, who he fell in love with in that on that same property and ella uh, later on married my great grandfather and she became marani ila devi of rajpipla my great grandmother wow. uh, so they fell in love in that property uh, called hanumanteshwar which was was developed by him in 1920s unfortunately that palace was uh, made uh, very close to the river so it was got damaged in floods and later on it got destroyed and uh, demolished but on the ruins of that uh, that that property that hanumanteshwar uh, i have built uh, an lgbt community campus which is the first one of its kind in india which is a heaven for the community and uh, that space is being utilized by people from all over the world homophobic people are not allowed there i'm sorry <laughs> but uh, all allies <laughs> and the people from the community are welcome to come and use that facilities and uh, uh, i have had numerous visitors from all over the globe i have a visitors register which i call the united nations wow absolutely yeah. amazing i love the idea of an historic building being rebuilt and used for new purposes today i think that's absolutely wonderful and i think actually that that to me uh, kind of sums up the story we've heard from you today about something that is deeply rooted in history but incredibly relevant to our modern times this beautiful property 15 acres of the royal establishment of hanumanteshwar was actually a gift by my father to me so you see that it was how change happens with education a homophobic father who disowned and disinherited me had a complete change of mindset and through education through media through influential people like oprah and others a few years later he decided to gift me uh, this uh, beautiful land 15 acres of the royal establishment and 
he also laid the foundation stone of the LGBT community campus. Oh, I love. So that's that's a fact, and uh, and because of his uh, support, there are so many people uh, who are known to us who are initially extremely homophobic. They also changed. They said if the king, if, if the father who is the king is accepting the son and is supporting, then why can't we? His Good. one gesture has has created so many allies, so many allyship. That's beautiful. I love actually the idea that. Uh, through education, you and your father have come to a place where he supports you and has given you land and supports the community centre. And that, again, just uh, a fantastic journey for you and for him. And thank you so much for sharing it with us this afternoon. You're, you're truly an inspiration. It's been wonderful to chat to you. Thank you so much for joining us here on Love History Podcast. Thank and you so much. Good luck with all your advocacy and um, yeah, absolutely, really enjoy talking to you. You're an inspiration to all of us. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me on this. Wow, an absolutely fascinating interview, particularly considering it's LGBTQ plus history month here in the UK. What a wonderful man. That really, um, speeches, some of the stories were just so incredible. And yeah, I mean, what did, what did you learn? What was your takeaway? So I think what's really interesting is he, for me, it's about how you use your privilege. So he was born into a very rarefied and privileged world. And he didn't just say, I'm going to enjoy this or keep my own sexuality or my desires, you know, separate and secret. He actively uses his position of privilege, which he recognizes, but for the greater good and particularly for the good of the most marginalized people in society. And I think that's an interesting piece around if you are born into a position of privilege, whether that's being white, whether that's being male, whether that's being wealthy, member, it's being a member of the royal family, how can you use that position of privilege to have a positive impact on the world? So that's what I found absolutely fascinating and, and amazing. How about you? What did you learn? Yeah, it's really interesting you say that because there's that theory of paying it forward, isn't there? When you are in a position to pay it forward, you should. I learned, okay, so two things. What First thing quickly from the interview was that, you know, I know that uh, bigotry and hypocrisy comes from a place of fear. People hate from a place of fear, but they also, and that's from not knowing, a fear of not knowing, they're unfamiliar. But also in, in his experience, it was a fear of knowing, you know, his people who possibly were allies turned against him because they were afraid for themselves so again it's all fear now so that's that I kind of knew that anyway that it comes from fear the thing that I really learned was after we finished recording we were having a chat and I showed um the prince a find that I found in the River Thames I'm holding it up here for the YouTube viewers but for if you're just listening it's actually a resin statuette of the goddess Kali and she is the goddess uh of uh change and strength and kind of some some fairly like strong powers and the prince told us about the red mark on his forehead that he wears as a sign of strength, overcoming the bigotry and the hypocrisy. And he was saying his family, his bloodlines are of a warrior and his psychological, the way he 
acts every day. He prays to the same goddess Kali and he acts as a warrior every day. So as you were saying, speaking up for those communities who um who really need who need that allyship. So yeah, fantastic. That was fascinating. Yeah. And sadly we didn't get that in the interview, but I'm glad you brought it up there. Well listen our time together is up today. Dear listeners, please make sure that you follow and you subscribe to the Love History Podcast. And if you have any questions or comments for us, you can email us at lovehistorypodcast at gmail.com. But for now, Mara Louise, Old Father Thames, this is Gay Aristo saying lovely to chat to you. Take care. See you soon. <laughs>